20 years is a span of time we can imagine. It's a time we can conceive, and it's time enough for serious change. What kinds of work will we be doing in 2040? What industries will still be going strong? And which will have fallen away? The training and education we need now will depend on the kinds of work, the industries and services around which, as a nation, we want to build our economy and society. So setting the agenda now is crucial. Welcome to The New Social Contract. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach, and today we're looking at universities and the nation's workforce. If we are to live within the boundaries of this planet's finite resources, what jobs will be needed for the future? And how might this shape the kinds of teaching and research that universities do? Right now, Australia is facing possibly the worst economic downturn in its history. And this is without the possible consequences of a second wave of infection. 29 years after the recession we had to have comes the one we couldn't avoid. Is Australia in recession today? The answer to that uh, is yes. Josh Frydenberg didn't utter the R word, instead painting the grimmest of pictures. This was The Economist's version of Armageddon. Recovery from periods of high unemployment rarely happens quickly. And the corona crisis is likely to have far-reaching consequences, affecting all aspects of our economy and community for years to come. So how should that sobering prospect reshape the relationship between universities, government and society, including industry? To help me with this big conversation, I'll be speaking with two people who have different takes on what this future should look like. Alison Pennington is a senior economist at the Centre for Future Work, which is part of the Australia Institute. The private sector can't pull us out of this decline. It's going to have to be long and sustained public spending and planning and the kinds of levers and coordination that we would expect from government in any type of depression. And that's what we had in the 1940s coming out of the reconstruction. Uh, And that's the kind of reconstruction and planning that we need today. And Megan Lilly is Head of Workforce Development at the Australian Industry Group, or AIG, Australia's peak industry association. Megan is also the Chair of Manufacturing Skills Australia and has been a member of several industry and skills groups. I don't think anyone can realistically expect to exit a qualification, get a job and stay in that job for their working life. Those days are long gone. Megan says the days of a job for life are long gone. What kind of workforce and industries does Australia need to be educating and skilling people for, both in the context of the post-COVID economic recovery and also further into the future? It's a big question, I know, Megan, but what do you see as the future of work? Um, Really good if I had the definitive answer, but I don't actually think anybody does. Um, So we really need to look at the trends and what we can see emerging. But just in relation to the COVID part of that question, the first thing I'd say is, I don't know that COVID's necessarily changing the future of work, but it might be certainly accelerating aspects of it. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of the directional stuff was already in place. Um, But I would make, with the possible exception that I think we'll see a lot more manufacturing actually happen domestically. The one thing the pandemic has brought out is that we have some disrupted supply chains at the moment in the country and that there is a lot more of an appetite to actually rebuild some of those supply chains domestically, which will mean um, enhanced manufacturing. Having said that, I don't know that we're necessarily going to go to a situation where people will be happy 
to pay a lot more for certain things. So so that that's actually got a bit of play its way out somewhat. Manufacturing was already undergoing the process of becoming much more high tech, you know, advanced manufacturing, for example. And um, including some automation, but more importantly, it was probably digitalization. And so we were seeing manufacturing transform and industry more broadly transforming. And I think that that will be a bigger piece going forward. There is a um, a, a view, uh, it's a view I don't share, that the automation uh, will increase and reduce employment or reduce employment opportunities. I'm actually of the school of thought that automation and digitalisation actually create work and create jobs, but they create different jobs. And they by and large more highly skilled jobs and they're the, the people jobs um, that work in conjunction with automation and digitalisation and the problem-solving elements. So I actually think that that is something that we should embrace. But I think really the skills that people will need, regardless of which jobs they're in going forward, are going to be the people skills, so the problem-solving, communicating, teamwork, all of those types of skills will underpin more or less every job. And so it's that skill base combined with technical skills or contextually developed skills that's going to be the requirement into the future, and that's where the future of work will sit. So I think that that becomes the um, focal point. Alison, you're Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work and your organisation conducts and publishes progressive economic research on work, employment and labour markets. What does Australia need to be educating and skilling people for? What do you think is the future of work? Well, it's a pretty unusual time for us to have this conversation, although in some ways the right time. I think it's worth taking account of the scale of you know, the economic challenge that faces our nation um, and the globe. It is actually a type of contraction that's going to be worse than the the Great Depression. We're talking over 20% decline GDP. Uh, And if you adjust the current unemployment rate for people who are on the JobKeeper payments, uh, people who've lost hours, our realistic unemployment figure is something like 2.5 million people or about 20% of the labour market. So, It's a discussion about what the future of jobs is. It does have to start from a recognition that the number of people that we need to be mobilising and putting them into work is just so vast. You know, as we move out of this liminal space where we're consistently told that only the private sector can determine what the future of jobs are, we need to be saying more and more that this is a democratic discussion and a collective discussion about what kind of future jobs do we want. So it's very clear that... If you're working in an essential service, uh, there's a good chance your job is secure. And there's a good chance that if uh, you wanted a job in the near future, you should be angling for something in in healthcare, education, you know, all of our essential services, logistics, cleaning even. So anything that's required to keep the economy ticking over and providing basic essentials is going to be the work that will be in demand. Um, Of course, the problem is that work is quite often underpaid, low paid and often has poor conditions. Um, But then the other thing that's happened in this crisis is a very trade exposed economy like Australia that has operated on the basis that we can link our trade networks into these just in time supply chains means that we have depended on buying cheap imports, cheap manufacturers from our neighbours. And when global production stutters in an event like a global pandemic and a global recession, a country like Australia has been very exposed. So 
in a in the most immediate sense, we rely on importing something like 96% of our medical goods. So that's the, the first clear area that we say, hey, if we're going to pull through this pandemic, we need to be able to produce and manufacture medical goods, the things that we need to keep our population safe. Um, but then that expands to all the other essential manufacturers that we also depend on, even stuff like chemicals to treat our water systems. Like we import all of these. And if we lose the ability to stockpile them anytime soon and that our water supplies are completely undermined. So it starts there and it emanates out from that because we look at the the challenge before us with climate change. You say, how well is the Australian economy kitted out with the right manufacturers? Is our housing apt for the future? Uh, you know, there's there are so many ways that we can say that manufacturing is going to be a pretty clear site for uh, future job development purely because we just can't produce the stuff that we need right now. The weaknesses in the global economy and Australia's reliance in particular on international supply chains have been exposed by COVID. Megan and Alison both agree that high-end manufacturing is a potential area to invest in to secure Australia's future. Megan, what do you think it will take to build a more resilient economy in the wake of the disruptions of COVID-19? It is about understanding and getting um, sustainability in those supply chains so that you don't find the weak point that then can actually create a whole set of problems. And, you know, I've been talking to many companies over this period of time and, you know, one company was manufacturing a $5 million piece of machinery and they were just missing a few really small parts that they used to import from China and took them a long time to actually find somewhere else to source them from. So that's just one example of a supply chain not functioning. But when it becomes more critical if the supply chains are attached to health or food or energy, those sorts of things. So those things need to be considered. The other opportunity on the table at the moment too is to rebuild jobs in a sustainable way in terms of environmental impact and actually have a look at carbon emissions. So actually building the recovery of the economy and the environmental impacts in together to try and get more sustainable jobs. And technology is an important part of that solution too. So, Alison, if if one of the elements of a more resilient economy is a high quality domestic manufacturing capacity, what kind of systems approach is needed to reach that goal, starting with, say, raw materials and moving through to workforce needs, training, production, but maybe also technological development and maintenance? I mean, thinking about all these things together, how might that change the ways we go about planning for future work? The skill system is not well set up for even just the start of that manufacturing challenge. And it's been on record for some time that the distinction that the post-secondary education system makes between vocational technical skills and knowledge and you know intellectual labour of academia. This is a false distinction. It's been peddled out alongside class division, this idea that the vet sector and TAFE is where you go if you can't succeed in you know finishing school and pursuing a better career. And university is where you go if you want to uh, succeed and get a secure and stable career. Government isn't doing enough to you know, create the conditions where we can actually create a advanced manufacturing sector. So we've got this pretty unusual situation where, you know, some universities have tried to manifest those conditions, um, kind of play make-believe, uh, in the hope that getting these graduates up to speed with combining both their theoretical knowledge that you would normally ascribe to academia, but then 
applying that knowledge through technical skills and manipulation of products. And that's that's what advanced manufacturing is about. And that's the kind of education system that places like Germany have been rolling out now for, for decades. Um, and it's, you know, partly why they're a manufacturing powerhouse and why there's, you know, meaningful, decent careers for, for people who, um, you know, get to combine both theoretical and technical expertise. So I think that's one example of where we would start is like, how is it that our skill system is actually preparing people to acquire the right skills they need? And then you look on the other side of that equation, of course, industry policy is another gaping hole in Australian policy now for for decades, and you know, we've packed up our manufacturing sector. We've had no plan about what to do when we said goodbye to over 200,000 manufacturing jobs. Um, those people have often gone into uh, insecure work that didn't use any of their skill sets. We didn't use those skills. We didn't build on them. Um, and the other side of that is, yeah, we need to be talking about what sort of levers can government use to support the development of a advanced, efficient, high productivity, export oriented manufacturing sector, which is th- the future that we need to be moving towards. And you clearly see government as having a big role to play in that. Others think that perhaps there are incentives that can make that um, a business-led development. I, I think we need to be using all of the levers and all of the options available to us. So that could look like direct government investment in you know, new capital uh, because it's very expensive to set up these high productive manufacturing operations. There are examples like Korea and Sweden where they have public banks that directly provide injections of funding to, to develop that capital. Um, and then there is a whole bunch of incentives and levers that can be developed that, you know, whether that means government providing investment on the condition that the private sector comes to the table, more direct sorts of tax incentives for uh, writing off capital costs. It's about crowding in, I think, at this point, because the private sector can't pull us out of this decline. It can't pull us out of this mess now. It's going to have to be long and sustained public spending and planning and the kinds of levers and coordination that we would expect from government in any type of depression. And that's what we had in the 1940s coming out of the reconstruction. Uh, and that's the kind of reconstruction and planning that we need today. It's it's not just private sector, it's not just government, but we, we definitely need to be having a democratic collective discussion about if we're mobilising these types of public resources, how can we get the private sector to the table and make that investment work in the public good rather than just in the interests of a few people. I mean, in the 1940s, one of the things governments did was put a whole lot of professions on a reserved list. University students in areas like medicine and agriculture and engineering were not only funded to do their education, but their study was designated as a form of national service. Do you think that there are particular areas that governments should be investing in now when it comes to training? Yeah, I think that it's quite clear that we've had a huge problem in created by the privatisation of our social services sectors. These have created untold harm to individuals and families and communities and workers in these industries. Those, those privatisation experiments have, have yeah, utterly failed. They are the, the vocational education system, uh, which has been in disarray for, you know, the last five, six, seven years before we, the universities got to this point of being uh, left out of income support from government. Um, And then we've also got the aged care sector, we've got the disability services sector, community services, 
really all of the expanded social services systems that, that were expanded during the neoliberal period could all be improved and all require strong investment to expand the number of jobs available to decrease the ratios that some of these workers are having to deal with, but also lift the level of skills because there's been just complete race to the bottom on the skills front as well in order to basically cheapen labour and make it cheaper to run these things. So uh, I would say that government should absolutely focus on investing in the professionalisation of high-skill social services and healthcare work, and that goes for education too. And then I think the manufacturing question is a pretty clear one. We could easily look at the type of public investment we need in infrastructure, environmental, all of the um, investments we need to re sort of fit out our economy to deal with climate change. And that's going to be very specialist sort of work. I think we need to be protecting the work of, you know, engineers and people who start to straddle that applied engineering space because that sort of flexible and creative and innovative applied work is the kind of stuff that we're going to need, I think. So we're hearing the term skills talked about a lot at the moment, not least from the Prime Minister and the Minister for Education. Megan, when people talk about skills and reskilling, what do they mean? I think that's a good question because the word skills is is actually often used as shorthand for quite a number of different things. It isn't just doing manual stuff. It's really about work and jobs. And so when you talk about skills, you can equally be talking about the skills of a graduate engineer to a an apprentice or a tradesperson or, or anything in between. And so um, when we talk about skills, we're really talking about what people do in work and, and they can do many things. I mean, they can work in white-collar environments and production environments. In, in the conversation, I think we shouldn't narrow it down to um, just sort of manual application of tasks because that is absolutely not what we're talking about. But there's a lot of really different ideas about what those skills mean on the one hand and also how you might teach them on the other. I asked Alison what she meant when she used the term skills and which skills she thought were in short supply. Um, well, when we talk about skills, we're talking about the, the basic competencies that um, people combine. You know, if we're talking about a workplace situation, it's to, to apply and navigate the, the performance of labour effort. And it's an area that's fraught with contention because quite often and leading up to this crisis, and I expect that we'll hear these calls from employers more and more about skill shortages. And of course, we need to be able to point to the fact that there's 2.5 million people who are unemployed. Any notion of a skills shortage uh, should immediately be responded with, well, why aren't we developing the skills pipeline to fill those holes? And quite often a skills shortage exists because employers are unwilling to lift the wage and often you lift the wage and suddenly someone magically appears. Employers have become very content and they're used to, to be able to get the, their pick of the, of the underutilised labour markets. They can pick who they want and that's why they, they keep bleeding on about skill shortages. Um, at the same time that they've talked about skill shortages, we've seen a huge decline in employers investing in the skills of their workforce. Um, and that's a lot to do with our industrial relations system and the way that wages have become the main basis on which employers are, are competing with each other. And they're not actually thinking about how do I lift the overall skills basis of my workforce so that they can actually compete based on the quality of the product they do rather than just how cheap they're working for. 
So I think that we're going to have to need a, a complete turnaround in the way that we frame skills in the workplace because I, at this point, do not trust Uh, the private sector to be leading that trajectory. We already know that they're mostly putting their efforts into cutting wages right now, uh, which again, that would just be disastrous for the skills basis of the Australian workforce. Given that Megan Lilly has been a member of a number of industry and skills groups, including the National Skills Standards Council, the Victorian Skills Commission and the Queensland Industry Commission, I wondered what role she thought employers should play in deciding questions about how to skill their workforce. Uh, I think employers need to play a very significant role. Um, so just I'll just be clear from the beginning, um, I do think a lot of what tertiary education about is about work. But it is not only about that. So uh, please understand that I that advanced critical inquiry, I'm not diminishing that at all. But I, And I'm not just saying that we need to um, educate people just so they get a job. I think that that's far too simplistic, um, but I think we need to be able to educate people so that they can participate actively in productive work um, and that needs to be informed by, you know, a good, strong knowledge base um, and the capacity to you know, ask all of those questions and inquiries. I think the stronger the partnership, the better the outcome um, with employers and educational institutions and indeed um, the students going through those experiences. Um, And I think increasingly employers will need a highly skilled workforce, a highly educated workforce, and I think every indicator has been suggesting that to us for a long period of time. I don't see that shifting or changing. A lot of education can actually happen in the context of work. And that's that ongoing learning and developing and training piece. But I also think, um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity at the moment with the revised Australian Qualifications Framework, and I was actually on that panel that that, um, came up with the revisions, is an opportunity to, to implement that and actually then use that framework over time, redevelop. Um, our product suites of qualifications in a way that actually creates a more coherent suite of qualifications. It it better balances the relationships between knowledge, skills and knowledge and application Um, and it enables a much more um, greater capacity in the individual to actually traverse uh, a number of qualifications or different levels for different purposes but in a non-hierarchical way. And I think moving to a non-hierarchical approach would be a really good thing to do because the way people learn and work in their life isn't just a ladder that goes up. It's much more diverse and complex than that and we should have a framework that enables us to recognise that. So if we got that bit right um, and we use the opportunity that's right there at the moment, we really could um, then find better coherence in vocational and higher education to create a more coherent tertiary education sector that better supports people um, in work, to get work, in work and to keep work or keep, you know, have a sustainable career. Um, And, you know, resilience in the labour market is going to be an incredibly important thing. The other thing that then would be challenged is then what do our institutions look like and do do we have them divided in the way we do now? And I think that that would be a tremendous conversation to have. Um, But I would also challenge that our institutions shouldn't look like what they do now um, and they won't in any case because I think the relationship between um, workplaces, communities and institutions, whether they're TAFE or universities, um, will continue to merge and blend and so, so they should. 
And if that world of work is changing in the ways that, you know, you were sort of predicting uh, or you're predicting unpredictability, do you think there are specific areas that we should be investing in? Is there a kind of direction, a role for planning in focusing training in one area rather than the other? This whole pandemic exposed the importance of digital skills. Digital literacy is incredibly important and without it, people will get seriously left behind. Um, but di- literacy is sort of the base level um, of functionality, so there's also much more uh, higher-order versions of skills that are required as well. Um, but I, I really just think the capacity to be adaptable and flexible is going to be incredibly important now because I don't think anyone can realistically expect to exit a qualification, get a job and stay in that job for, the, for their working life. Those days are long gone. So what are we looking at then if not that sort of you know lifetime career in one sector? Well, some people, it, it'll be different for everybody. So some people will have um, multiple jobs and multiple careers, as a lot of research suggests. And, and some jobs will get massively disrupted by technology. So anything that's rules-based has the potential to be disrupted by technology and disrupted to the point of some of them no longer existing. And so that's actually starting to push into white-collar jobs more than um, had previously been the case. Um, but the other thing that will happen is that there'll be a lot of shifting within a job. So the name of the job might stay the same, but um, research tells us that up to 50% of those jobs, the actual skills and applications within the job will shift. And so just because you are a plumber doesn't mean you do what plumbers did 20 years ago. Actually, within the job would be significantly different. And so in a way, it doesn't matter if you're talking about sort of a trade-based job or a white-collar job. We shouldn't confuse the title of the job that we know so well with actually what people now do in those jobs. And so that that shift will be continuous and um, sometimes it's very subtle too so people don't realise the shifts that have been made. Um, But digitalisation and automation will be able to transform many, many jobs. I guess historically, and I'm a historian, so, you know, here's my confession, um, workplaces have or industry groups, you know, employers, have taken responsibility in the 20th century for training workers on the job. So as the nature of work has changed, that has been something that has happened within the workplace. It sounds like you're predicting a kind of future in which um, education providers will provide some of that upskilling or retraining to enable people to continue their work. Yeah, I think think that's right. So I would... um but that that also might also be in the workplace too. So it's not just um, the employers doing it themselves. There'll be potentially the external party can come into the workplace, or employers employees can go to, you know, institutions. But so I think the um, institutional notion of education and training is sort of one entity, and then the, the workplace is another entity. That, that that sort of barrier will break down continuously. And so I think you know the future of universities is to sort of be everywhere, to be in the workplace, to be in the community and, and also, you know, in their own institutional remit. Um, so I think those borders or boundaries, they're what will go. That's what will disappear and that's what will change. And so in a way, the opportunity is for the universities um, to become more ubiquitous. I guess that chimes with the idea of lifelong learning, which isn't new, but which is being advocated so widely these days. 
But whereas the current competitive job market puts responsibility for training and upskilling on individuals, Alison Pennington thinks there's another more promising education to job pathway that could be developed and even enhanced. Australia has, like other liberal market economies, it's created a a very dog-eat-dog system with the expectation that individuals uh, navigate the wilderness completely alone. And that goes from, it starts in high school, you're told to basically choose a career when you're a teenager um, and start actively working towards building that career. And the idea is it's always on the individual to reach that outcome. Um, I think we have to recognise that that kind of very wild, wild west approach to education to jobs is it's so inefficient it's so wasteful in, in an economic sense but it's also really unfair on on individuals who are you know having to bear all that pressure and it's not normal like and there are lots of economies in the world um, particularly in Europe where the education to jobs pathway is far less fraught with hiccups and bumps and Um, it's far more efficient because it actually recognises by creating those pathways, uh, you're getting people into meaningful and decent work, um, often decreasing the cost of unemployment um, and dislocation among youth. And uh, it's a recognition that all social partners are part of building that pathway. The problem with this liberal market model in Australia and others is that we kind of go, well, is it the responsibility of the individual or should we point the finger at employers and say, hey, you should be covering the costs and investing in your workforce, building up their skill sets. And I think we can't expect that of employers. Like they operate on a profit incentive. Um, They're mostly concerned about just increasing their bottom line. So if all the other actors in an economy are allowed to keep competing on the basis of wages, then that's a public problem. That's something that we've created that we allow our government to do or not do. Um, And I I think that we have to have a principle from the start that the the role of the public sector is to provide education um, and skills. And a big reason why the the whole system comes unpicked um, never mind the incentives of employers, but it's actually the privatisation of the education system. That's where a lot of the, the problems start, they manifest out of. We do have some skill shortages in Australia and they're often around technical trades and occupations. Uh, and that's because of what we did to the vet sector. And that was a disastrous privatisation experiment in, from 2012, uh, where TAFE, the long-held public pillar of delivering grounded, community-based vocational techno-education completely had its funding ripped out from underneath it. We had thousands and thousands of all these dodgy private providers flood in and suddenly we've got um, people saddled with high debts, dodgy qualifications and um, employers that are still unwilling to, you know, to invest in that system. Of course they don't believe in it because it's it's a wild, wild west system. This is why there must be a role for the public sector in providing, I would say, free education. Um, and then we start to deal with the incentives and how it is that employers start to play in that system. I think we have to start from the basis that education and skills are human rights. Everyone has the right to access those those things in the process of you know getting to a job, but also just to, to having a meaningful, decent life and you know a contribution they can be proud of. In terms of, I mean, pre-pandemic, what OECD data showed us, uh, which compares skills shortages and sort of the basis, le- the basic level of skills across the workforce uh, across OECD countries, 
it found that indeed Australia has no shortage of technical skills. In fact, we've got very high levels of technical skills. Uh, what we have a shortage of is some of the more basic grounded competencies to mobilise specific technical knowledge, like critical thinking skills, like verbal reasoning, uh, like social communication skills. Like these are these are actually, we had some like quite worryingly low levels of like our basic competencies compared to other OECD countries. So this is the area that, um, you know, we need to be focusing on. And I think that's one of the, the key tenets of a higher education system is to be not just providing details and rote learning, you know, capacity, but actually teaching people how to mobilise, critically mobilise ideas uh, apply them in a context and communicate those ideas with people uh, because we do know that communication and you know, being able to negotiate and uh, understand challenges and shifting terrain around you is going to be one of the most critical skill sets that we need for, for people um, you know, going forward with all the policy problems that we face. And those relational sort of skills were traditionally in the kind of bit of education that wasn't on practicality, but perhaps was on questions about relating to the world and understanding the world. Those sort of questions around the meaning of, of things don't tend to find a place in the discussion around micro-credentials, which is emerging at the moment. Do you have worries about the kind of micro-credential agenda and what it means for those soft skills that, that you identify as so necessary? Absolutely. I think the micro-credentialing phenomenon is is sort of like the last dying, gasping breaths of the neoliberalisation of, of education. It's It basically looks at the most profound policy problems of a jobs market that's failing to provide jobs, a gov- governments that are failing to invest in long-term planning. And it's it doubles down on this idea that uh, it's all individuals' responsibility and what should be done is, you know, you know, make busy work essentially. Like if things aren't working out for you in your current job, um, you should pick up this sort of micro-credential, make your CV look better. And it's it's all about individual competition and being able to one-up the person uh, next to you as people vie for, an, you know, less and less decent full-time meaningful jobs. Um, not necessarily even meaningful, let's just say decent full-time jobs. Uh, and without any any attachment of that credential to like a, the real the real jobs market, I think a, a good example of the, this farce is what government first did. In fact, I think it's the only offering they've made to youth in this pandemic period of uh, subsidised short courses, twenty thousand positions. When we're looking at you know almost a million young people who are either unemployed or completely dropped out the labour market. And the offering of government is to open up 20,000 subsidised short courses that don't even lead to jobs. I mean, that's that's a joke. I think that it's, it, it's good, a good insight into, I think, what micro-credentialing is really all about. I think it's busy work and it's, it's make-do work for a broken education and skill system on both the government side and the education institution side. Megan... Australia has a highly educated population, thanks really to the higher education reforms that were put in place from the early 1990s onwards. Yet we also have a high youth unemployment rate, which is double the rate of the wider Australian population. What's going wrong in this relationship between education and the job market at the moment? Given the um, economic you know, circumstances of the moment, 
I mean, you know, a lot of people are estimating youth unemployment, you know, will hit 20% or more. Um, and the other thing to remember with youth unemployment is that it takes twice as long to recover to um, pre-economic downturn levels than the rest of the population. So, you know, they really bear the brunt of a, an economic downturn. So we should be really concerned about this. If you actually look at it, it's usually pockets of unemployment, youth unemployment. So it is very place-based or geographically based. And I think one of the issues that with Australia's education and training system, and particularly if you look at the schooling system, is um, it's, Australia's always been considered to have a long equity tail. And by that, um, what we mean is that the highest levels of achievement um, are very correlated to um, socioeconomic factors. So where you've got the lower socioeconomic factors kicking in or the more disadvantaged groups, they're more disadvantaged in terms of educational outcomes and everything. And that's also where you get the um, big areas of youth unemployment. So we really need to, at the very heart um, of the issue, address educational disadvantage at the primary and secondary levels in order to tackle youth unemployment. So it's a long way to get to that answer. And also, you know, it's a long way to help solve the problem. So, um, you know, it's, it's tricky, tricky stuff. But um, I'm very concerned about the looming issues with youth unemployment as a result of the pandemic. And um, we, if we don't do something, we do run the risk of sacrificing a generation of young people that they will only ever be marginally attached to the labour market. Uh, and that's just not something that we should sit by and let happen. Alison, what do you think young people should be demanding of governments, of employers and of universities? The world. <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> well, I think, uh, look, let's look at what happened after the GFC and what some other governments' responses were. And these were off the back of, by the way, pretty massive anti-austerity protests that, that pushed for these sorts of outcomes. Uh, Sweden instituted a youth guarantee um, as a response to public pressure, uh, but also the fact that they just had a far more coordinated economy where they worked with social partners way more. But that guarantee says that every young person has the right to uh, an, op- an education opportunity, that's, and that's free, uh, a, a job pathway, and government invests in basically securing um, good, meaningful, long-term paid work. Uh, and if they don't want to do either of those things, then government provides access to uh, small business startup funds. And so you kind of you're covering the whole gamut there. And I think that that's the kind of um, income and skills protections that are that are needed at this point. And I I found the whole discussion since the pandemic really interesting because for young people really like the labor market's been a bit of a shit show since since the GFC it's been declining the outcomes have been declining for graduates um, in full-time work so there's less and less entry-level jobs available uh, they've become more and more underemployed more likely to be unemployed they're dropping out of the labor market entirely and that's that's the sign of young people giving up on the world of work entirely and this was all happening before the COVID crisis so I, I really struggle to see how young people are going to cop it. And then you've got to layer on the climate change challenge on top of that and look at all the momentum that was built from the, you know, particularly teenagers who are leading the climate change movement for young people. 
Um, and then you layer on top of that basically completely severed pathways to like any security, income security. So I take heart from the fact that we've seen some pretty good mobilizations and collective representation and organization of young people. I also take heart from the fact that we're looking at the most educated generation in Australian history. Uh, and really history shows if there's a generation of young people who go backwards from their parents, they do rise up and they do organize. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, like late 60s all across Europe, Paris 68. In May 1968, France was brought to a near standstill by widespread student protests and the largest general strike since the 1930s. The students were protesting against capitalism and what they perceived as an outdated society. That was one of the main, um, you know, markers of that period were young people having access to education and uh, the world as they saw it not matching up to their expectations. Um, in, in paid work and, you know, whatever the powers that be were offering them. So I, I think that uh, these things will come out in struggle. These, like, what it is that young people want will emerge over time. But I, I've, I always start from, you know, things like free education, wiping of all of, uh, wiping of debts, um, demands for the creation of good, well-paid public sector jobs, a massive expansion of entry-level work, um, you know, the public sector used to be the go-to place for young people coming out of university where they could really build meaningful careers. Alison's vision of free education was a reality in Australia in the 1970s and 80s, and it continues to be the norm in countries like Germany, Norway, Sweden and France. But Megan has a different view about how higher education and training should be funded. Well, there's sort of basically three payment points in any education and training system. One's the public purse and one's the individual and the other one's the employer. And, um, you know, ultimately it's going to be a combination of all of those things. Um, you would hope there would be good, strong public funding because there's a very strong public good that comes out of all this, you know, um, highly skilled, employed, uh, high employment, um, you know, productivity. Um, increasingly individuals have picked up some of the tab at both vocational and higher education, whether it's through HEX-type payments or various other things. Employers actually do invest a lot in education and training, but it's never captured particularly effectively. That investment is money, but it's also time. Um, so, look, I think it depends on which part of the education and training someone is getting as to what contribution all of those three parties make, and I think that will shift further away from the public purse after the initial qualification. Um, but governments are going to have to support um, upskilling and reskilling um, because, you know, governments need a good, strong labour force as well. And Alison, what do you say to critics who might say, well, where's all this money going to come from, all this public money? From the public money tree. And where this comes from is it's it's a thing called government prints money and it's quite astonishing. Uh, once, once people start to, it starts to click that we clearly have, you know, almost $230 billion um, that government had to roll out all of the existing economic programs uh, as the pandemic um, unfurled. And not, not nothing was said at the time that money was spent. As soon as it was spent, it was, we were told to get ready to tighten our belts. And um, what's remarkable about this incoming depression 
Um, I, you know, really, really hope that we don't get to the point where we've, we reach that level of stagnation um, and destitution. But what's remarkable about this time is it's clearer than ever that government has the capacity to take on very high levels of public debt and sustain that public debt. And we have historical precedents that shows, um, you know, and I used up the 1940s depression example. Um, for 10 years, we had market ideologues bleating while we were in destitution, that it was not possible for government to spend and that public debt would become a nuisance. And we put up with that for 10 years before we finally engaged in a reconstruction project, a full-fledged national reconstruction project, where we took on public debt that would vast surpass the, uh, the debt that's been taken on so far. Um, and I think it was something like 200% of GDP. It was, it was very high. And the, the way that this is paid off is by expanding economic activity, not by denying people jobs and cutting their wages and decreasing the overall level of economic activity. We pay off debt by expanding the pie. And this is, this is the key difference between the period we've been living under of neoliberalism the last few decades. It's been an era of forced scarcity, this idea, it's basically a hunger games where people who are in power tell everyone we don't have the capacity to spend, um, you know, business have to fight with unions, unions have to cut the wages, workers have to cut their wages for us to create the jobs. And what they, what governments don't want us to know, and of course, large sections of business is that um, we can actually expand public spending and the government and the public se sector as a whole can undertake far, far more economic activity than it does. And that's what the 40s reconstruction period showed us. It showed us debt was did not get in the way. And we've had a reaction against the expansion of our welfare state and the public services of that era. Um, the con it's been the continual uh, erosion of all of the space that we held as a collective um, where we could produce the things that people needed outside of the profit motive. And these are the battle lines. And um, the, the, the question of public debt is one of the, the clearest manifestations that that battle line is real and true. And you talk there about expansion, but you're also mentioning the imperatives of the ecological crisis. And in many ways, that notion of where the limits should be drawn within which industry and markets might operate is another of the battle lines. What are the limits that we should be drawing for a sustainable society in the long run? In terms of ecological limits, then obviously we need drastic investment into building our new renewable energy systems and networks. Uh, we need to build that infrastructure in order to impose the limit on fossil fuels. And this is until we have that infrastructure, then there is no limit because they all just keep digging crap out of the ground and keep saying it's the only way that we can produce the energy we need. I think some other, if I was to expand this concept of limits, I would say um, one limit should be the, the, the relative space that private interests get to have in controlling economic activity because if they control economic activity, they control, control jobs and therefore they control the lives of people. So... I think a limit should be as a collective on what a discussion of what areas the private sector is best and able suited for operating in. I think then if we if we understand what sectors of the economy uh, we would impose limits on private interest to, to run, we, we you know we obviously we start talking about what things are essential to humanity and to a good life. 
therefore we want people who are delivering us essential services like healthcare and education and you know social services and you know all the stuff that's essential to us we want those people to be respected and in and to be high skilled and to be remunerated for that skill level and what what i think that the neoliberal system has shown us is that we can't trust private interests to put the correct value on those skills they write down the quality of services the profit motive is corrosive on on what what it is that overall society needs and the limits we want to put on it which you know i guess what i'm getting at is our limit is that we we respect and value all human beings and their contributions I wanted to end by asking both Megan and Alison what kind of universities they thought Australia needs in the 21st century. I would say that the worst outcome would be um, a one-size-fits-all across all universities. So we must have diversity in what our universities do. We need diversity, we need specialisation, and I think universities um, are going to need to look less like universities and just part of um, everyday um, economic and community life and fully embraced by, you know, um, all parts of our community and our economy. Um, and I would also really hope for universities for the um, this century going forward is that they are absolutely deeply integrated and entwined with both the economy and community and that they are seen and owned um, by people, by our population, by our community, by our society, and they're sort of part of the beating heart of what happens all day, every day. Um, And I think that that level of engagement, that level of ownership and that sort of ubiquitous nature of it would be a tremendous place for it to be. I think the role of the university going forward is going to be incredibly important, but it's not singular. You said something um, which was um, very um, provocative, really. It was, we need universities not to look like universities, or you think they won't look like universities. What did you mean by that? Oh, look, it's just, um, universities can't be sort of monolithic institutions They've um, got to, it was a bit related a bit to access points, multiple access points, but it's not about people going to universities, it's about universities going out into the community, out into the workplaces, out into society. So um, in a way they should be everywhere and just part of daily life, not necessarily looking for the big, big institutional structural piece. Notwithstanding, that'll still be important, um, but, you know, just a more... Um, deeply entwined, engaged um, relationship is what they need to look like. And you, and you don't think they look like that now? I think there's more to go. And finally, Alison, given our discussion about the future of work, what sort of universities do you think Australia really needs in the 21st century? I think we need the public university. That's like the clearest place to start. It's the only way we're going to pull universities out of the mess they're in is by injecting large amounts of public funding back into them. I, I think we want universities to, to be part of a national skills system that works with the vocational education sector. I think that they have to be a system that uh, coordinates, uh, that works for the public good. And I think that as the public attach conditions to our investment in them, part of that, those conditions should be coordination and, uh, you know, working with social partners across the skill system, across the labour market. Um, 
all, all quality university systems in other parts of the world have very strong social governance networks, um, which means that it's not just the universities that actually run the skill system, that's actually, um, you know, lots of other education institutions, uh, but also workers who actually run the systems um, and coordinate things like advanced apprenticeships and internship programs, like the unions play a very strong role in delivering those. It's about increasing the level of coordination, increasing the number of stakeholders in a conversation. Uh, and what that means is that the universities have to shift, give up this, this privatisation experiment. And the pandemic has sort of forced that upon them. Um, but of course, there'll be people who'll be trying very hard to, to maintain what they have. Uh, but I, I think we are coming into an era where we can actually have a, a real reconstruction and reassessment of the entire post-secondary education system and remove these class divides between um, academic studies for you know more apt or able students and a, a vet sector for those who you know who have fallen behind or something i think we can create you know a world class uh you know post secondary system that has many different pathways supports students and linking that vision into expansive economic policy and a, a job creating industry policy agenda i think universities have to be really strong stakeholders in in all of those processes and for me i just always come back to the only way that we can imagine them taking on those new incentives and that new role as if they are public institutions um, first and foremost. This podcast is about the relationship that universities have with governments on the one hand and publics on the other. And those publics include a whole range of groups, including employers. The world of work has long been a tie binding these three elements of the social contract together. And that is one thing that's unlikely to change. But sometimes the future of work is described in terms that make certain kinds of changes sound inevitable. Digital disruption, for example, has been a buzzword for several years now. And although new technologies do have the capacity to reorganise existing systems, there is nothing inevitable about their effects or the uses to which they are put. These are the result of social and political decisions. The ways we imagine the future of work and the future of education with it depend on the kind of society we wish to build. What types of work, what types of jobs and what types of education will help build a resilient society that will enable individuals and communities to thrive in the changing environmental and economic conditions that are coming? As COVID-19 transforms our higher education system, that is the question we should be asking. Thanks to my guests for giving their time and sharing their thoughts. Megan Lilly, Head of Workforce Development at the Australian Industry Group, and Alison Pennington, Senior Economist with the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute. Next time on The New Social Contract, we look at universities and their communities. What is the relationship between universities and society? We've been talking a lot so far on this podcast about the relationship between universities and government. But what about the various communities universities serve? What should they be demanding? I think inviting people in from the community, from industry, from government, from partners into relationship, letting that relationship grow over some years 
it starts to do its own work is is my message uh, so start by opening up start by exploring and then let the consequences of what evolves guide what you do to continue the conversation we're having here head over to twitter you can find us at tsncpod or send us an email at impactstudios at uts.edu.au. There is also a linked article in the conversation by myself and Lisa Wheelerhand that you might like to check out. I'm Tamsin Peach, and thanks for listening to The New Social Contract. The news grabs and additional sounds in this episode on The New Social Contract podcast came from the following places. From Back in Black to Recession reported on AMABC. The recession we couldn't avoid on RN Breakfast with Fran Kelly, ABC. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says Australia has officially entered recession from ABC News. Treasurer warns the worst is yet to come as Australia's economy enters recession from ABC News. The Paris riots of 1968. French students again clash with riot police, Paris, France, published by British Pathé on YouTube. The May 1968 protests that paralysed France, published on Witness by BBC, and May 1968 Paris riots on the History Hour, published by the BBC. The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.